This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. all so much. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 3. We are getting back to our study of Mark today. We took a break for Palm Sunday and Easter and looked at 1 Corinthians 15. But uh, we are back to Mark today. I'm thankful for Michael and uh, preaching God's word last week. But let's look at Mark 3 and beginning with verse 7 where Jesus is beginning to call his disciples to himself. And that is sort of a model for our own call as disciples. And so we're talking about that and talking about our response to Christ's call today. Mark chapter 3, and let's look at verses 7 through 19 today, if you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word. The Bible says Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, And from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he named apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we dig into your word today, that you would speak by the power of your spirit to our hearts. We thank you that you do bring new life by the power of your spirit. And we pray that you would do that today. And we pray that you would help those of us who have experienced that new life to understand the new creation in Christ in a deeper way today. So Lord, these are crucial moments where you can do all kinds of beautiful things in our lives. Would you make us ready to receive that? Would you help us to to be focused on what you would say to us today through your word, by the power of your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. On August 11th, 1966, the Beatles arrived in America for what would turn out to be their final tour. And that hot August day, they they landed into a firestorm of controversy. Because the previous March, John Lennon had told a British 
magazine that it seemed like the Beatles had become more popular than Jesus. And in a world without social media, it took several months for this to filter over to this side of the Atlantic. But once it did, it just created this firestorm of controversy. And some radio stations were, were not playing the Beatles anymore, and events were held where Beatles... Albums were smashed or uh, thrown into uh, bonfires. And so once they landed, they held a press conference for John Lennon to set the record straight and to speak to the issue. And, And speak he did rather profoundly. He said this, John Lennon said, I was pointing out that we meant more to kids than Jesus or religion at that time. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down. I was just saying it as a fact. I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ. I just meant that the Beatles are having more influence on kids than anything else, including Jesus. If I had said television is more popular than Jesus, I might have got away with it. Now, the church would have been wise to listen with humility (laughs) to what was being said there. Because John Lennon was absolutely right. By 1966, a lot more kids were gathering around television sets than were gathering at churches. By 1966, many people were leaving the churches, especially in England where the Beatles were from, but they were mobbing the Beatles. Maybe instead of uh, burning records, the church should have been preoccupied with recapturing a burning passion for the gospel and sharing the gospel with young people. Because the Beatles were being mobbed here. But, but, but listen, in this text, as we just read, it's Jesus that is being mobbed. And uh, we, we, we see here in, in verse 9 that he, he even had to get a, a boat lest he be crushed by this mob. Now, this is not hyperbole. If you've ever been in a situation with thousands of people pressing around, this is how it feels. One time as a teenager, my friends and I waited all day long to get into Hampton Coliseum for a U2 concert. And we had had tickets for months, but this was one of those general admission concerts where you just rush in and get the best place you can find. And we wanted to be right in front of the stage. And so we waited all day long to get in. When the doors opened, we literally sprinted through the hallways of the Coliseum and down the steps to get right in front of the stage. And once I got there, I thought I was going to die. (laughs) Seriously. I thought I was going to be suffocated or crushed because of thousands of people just pressing in. I mean, this was the situation. Not to get to a concert, but to get to Jesus. Now, what was... What was provoking this kind of, of passion? What, what can we learn from this? The first thing that we see in this text is the reality of sickness. One of the primary reasons these people are so passionate to get to Jesus is because they had heard of his reputation and his power to heal. And so we see in verse 10 that he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Imagine if all modern medicine were suddenly to disappear from our culture. Well, welcome to the first century, where the average life expectancy 
in the time of Jesus was somewhere between 29 and 35. And there were some older people, but the figure there is skewed by the fact that so many little children died. And so there was a lot of heartbreak, a lot of desperation to get to someone who could address these physical needs and provide healing. Now, we can learn a couple of things from this. Jesus still heals. Sometimes he does so through doctors and nurses and modern medicine, all of which God has enabled. And sometimes he does it outside of any of those things, but he still heals. But there's a deeper message that we need to get here. The the deeper takeaway, as we've talked about before, is the fact that these healings that Jesus is doing are signs. Signs of new creation. In the Gospel of John, they're even referred to by the word signs. Sickness itself is a sign. It's a sign that something is wrong with the body. It's a sign that something is wrong with the world. Because God created a world without sickness and without disease and without death. None of these things came into being until sin entered the world. And so sickness itself is a sign of of a world marred by sin. These healings are signs of the new creation that Jesus is bringing. Now, when we looked at 1 Corinthians 15... We saw that in the, the, when the, that new creation is consummated, when Christ comes again, we saw that believers in Jesus are going to be raised with glorified bodies that will be imperishable, no longer subject to sickness or disease. But that new creation, while not consummated, until Christ returns, that new creation was inaugurated at the coming of Christ. That's what you're seeing here. These healings are signs that the kingdom of God has come, that new creation has begun, and that God has begun to heal his broken world. And he sends us out now as agents of his healing and love and grace in the midst of this broken world where so much healing is needed. We'll talk about that as we move on. But we see here the reality of of sickness. Second, we see the reality of evil. Verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. The demons here are referred to as unclean spirits. And that tells us something about them. They're referred to as spirits. Because they are non-physical. You know, we get, we get preoccupied with physical enemies that we can see. But that's not, that's not our true enemy. <laughs> our true enemies, our ultimate enemies are the non-physical enemies that we can't see. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the demons are spirits, and they are unclean spirits. 
which means that they soil, they defile anyone that they inhabit. They're all about the destruction of life, whereas Jesus is about the flourishing of life. Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief, referring to Satan, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, note here in verse 11 that the demons recognize Jesus immediately. They recognize his true identity They fall down before him and cry out, you are the son of God. Now this is not something that people understood at this point. The the father at the baptism of Jesus, you remember that when Jesus comes up out of the water, voice comes from heaven, you are my beloved son. And the demons understand that Jesus is the son of God. God. They're part of the supernatural realm and they know his identity immediately. They they know it before people know it. And what do they do? They fall down. The word here for that when it says they fell down, that word there is the it's the word that we get the word prostrate from. When an inferior falls prostrate before a superior. And so whenever these demons see Jesus coming, they're terrified. They're cowering. They're falling prostrate before him in his presence. And what does that tell us? I mean, that tells us that, you know, as as believers, we don't have to be uh, cowering before uh, Satan or or demons. Uh, They're cowering before Jesus. What it tells us is that we need to stay close to Jesus. As long as we stay close to Jesus, they can't touch us. They're they're terrified of him. What we're called to do is be alert, be spiritually alert, not not, not allow our lives to get into spiritual cruise control, but be spiritually alert so that we stay close to Christ. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So we see here the reality of evil. Third, we see the call to discipleship. The call to discipleship. Verse uh, verse 13. He went up on, on the mountain and called to him... Those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, this was not typical of the way that students related to a rabbi. What was typical was that if students wanted to study under a particular rabbi, I mean, they would choose to attend that rabbinic school kind of the way that uh, students choose to attend a certain college today. They, they choose. But you notice here that Jesus is the one doing the choosing. <laughs> Okay, it says he called to him those whom he desired. As Jesus says to them in John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Notice also that the call is to 
Jesus personally. And again, that was not typical. What was typical was that these students would be called to the study of the Torah. The calling was to the Torah. But Jesus is calling them to himself. It says in verse 13 that he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. Jesus does not call us to, uh, to uh, 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 like, you know, a, a philosophy. <laughs> He, he, doesn't, he doesn't call us to a, a philosophy. He doesn't call us to just sort of uh, good, good advice uh, for life or just a, a system of rules and regulations. Jesus calls us to himself. He calls us to a relationship. He doesn't call us to this, uh, this philosophy and say, okay, check off the blocks and you can be my disciple. He calls us to himself and he says, take up your cross. And be my disciple. He calls us to him. It's a relationship with him. He does the calling. We do the responding. He does the leading. We do the following. And then we see something about the nature of discipleship in verse 14, don't we? It says in verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out. To preach. There's the essence of discipleship. Disciples are called to be with Jesus. And then they are sent out by Jesus. But listen, there is no being sent out to minister unless we are first with Jesus. All right, we're, we're called, first of all, to sit at his feet. Being comes before doing. We're called, first of all, to be with him and to be empowered by him, to know him and to, to drink in the truth and be built up in the truth and equipped in the truth. And then we're sent out to minister. We try to go out to minister without first being with him and being continually replenished and refreshed by God's spirit and God's word. That's a recipe for disaster. We're called to be with him, and then he sends us out to minister. And then in verses 15 through 19, we meet the 12. And they're an interesting group. None of them came from the religious or political elite. But they were a very diverse group. You have two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. They're fishermen, they're businessmen, they were part of the highly competitive fishing industry on the Sea of Galilee, very successful. You had someone like Matthew, who in his pre-Christian life was a tax collector, hated tax collector, because he's, he's collecting taxes from his own people for the Roman government, working for the occupying power, working for the Romans. And then you have a guy like Simon the Zealot, who's part of a political movement. Before he meets Christ, he's part of a political movement to overthrow the Roman government. Now trust me, only one person can bring a guy like Matthew and a guy like Simon the Zealot together. And that's Jesus. 
But see, that's what he does. Jesus calls us into his family and he, he obliterates the barriers that separate people. Okay, black and white, male and female, Anglo and Hispanic, rich and poor. Okay, all these, all these things that society sets up as, as silos uh, to sort of divide people. Jesus brings us together in one family. One family. We see that in, in Galatians 3. In verse 28, when Paul speaks of the church, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We also see here something about God's unstoppable power. God's unstoppable power. Verses 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Now, what's the overwhelming thing here that Mark is seeking to communicate in verses 7 and 8? It's, it's the surging popularity of Jesus. These people are coming from all over. Great crowds. He says it twice. And they're pressing in. These So many people are pressing in. There's a danger that he could be crushed. They have to get this boat. <laughs> now, what comes immediately before verses 7 and 8? Look at verse 6. This comes right after the, the, the healing of this man on the Sabbath. And what happens? Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now what's the message that Mark is sending in putting these verses back to back? In verse 6 what we see is that the religious and political powers are hardening against Jesus. They are beginning to actively plot and scheme about how they can kill him. But then, in the very next verse, what do you see? You see that at the very time that, that these people are beginning to, to, to just be filled with such hostility that they're plotting to kill him, we see that these crowds of people are just flocking to Jesus. Now, what's the message that Mark is communicating here? It's, it's this. It's that God's purpose is unstoppable. In other words, it doesn't matter how much the religious and political leaders plot and scheme against Jesus, God's sovereign purpose is going to be fulfilled. It will not be stopped. This movement will not be stopped. And eventually, they are going to kill him. But that only sets the stage for what? Resurrection. And so, th this, this plotting and scheming of the Pharisees and the Herodians 
Listen, this is not something that is going to stop the work of Christ any more than, than persecution today can thwart the progress of the gospel. It's not going to happen. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about Jesus. And notice what it says here. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Listen, who, who is puny man to think that he could stop the progress of a sovereign God? I mean, it is comical to think about. Now, this should be so encouraging because, you know, when we see the persecution of the church, and when we hear about things like the, the bombing in Pakistan on, on Easter Sunday when these Christian families are out in a park and, and suicide bombers explode themselves right beside a swing set on a, a playground where these Christian families are, when we hear about these things happening and all of the plots, all the scheming, all the attempts to take out the gospel, you remember, it's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. Okay, and when we deal with spiritual warfare ourselves and when the enemy comes against us and adversity comes into our lives, listen, do you think that a sovereign God is going to be stopped by anything that Satan could throw at us? It's not going to happen. God's purpose is absolutely unstoppable in the world and in our lives as believers. And we should be encouraged by that. Notice where these people are coming from in verses 7 and 8. It says that this great crowd was coming. They were coming from Galilee and Judea. So the movement begins in Galilee. Okay, but now it's not, it's not just a Galilean thing anymore, right? They're coming from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea to the south. They're coming from beyond the Jordan to the east. They're even coming from places like Tyre and Sidon in the north. And these were Gentile areas in the north. See, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy about the Messiah, about God's servant, which we see in Isaiah 49 and verse 6, where the Bible says of the Messiah, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is God's purpose, that all peoples would know him, including Gentiles. And, and, and see, this is a fulfillment ultimately of the promise that God makes to Abraham. In Genesis 12:3, when he says to Abraham at the, at the beginning of the foundation of Israel, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Israel, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God says, through 
this people, the Jewish people, I'm going to bless every people. And when Israel turns against God, does that mean that you know, God's, God's purposes just fall to the ground? No. Because who does God bring forth from Israel? Yeshua. Jesus. And through Jesus, he's going to bless every family on earth, every, every people group on earth. Notice how many Jesus calls to himself initially. It's 12. How many tribes of Israel were there? 12. Do you think this is coincidental? It's not coincidental. Jesus is sending a message. He is creating a new Israel. And more than a new Israel. A new creation. God is bringing forth a new creation in Christ. And he's doing that by making people new. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, speaking of new creation, I want us to see something in, in verse 14. I've never seen this until this week. This is so cool. It says here in verse 14 that he appointed 12. But in the original, the word there is that literally that he made 12. He created 12. And it's the same word that is used in Genesis 1-1 when it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was creation, right? What's this? This is new creation. Jesus is bringing about a new creation. Making new people. And eventually renewing all of creation. Now listen, this should be so encouraging to us. You know, because sometimes we can feel like Christianity is like, okay, well, I commit my life to Christ and and then it's up to me to just make my way and, and do the best I can. No. I love what New Testament scholar James Edwards says about this. Edwards says this, Discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but what Christ can make of disciples. Isn't that encouraging? Listen. You just walk closely with Jesus. Put your hand in His. And see what God can make of your life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the new life that is found in Jesus. We pray that you would help us to to live out the reality of new creation in our lives and in our church. And as we just bow before the Lord now, if you're here today and maybe you've got questions about what all of this means 
Listen, we would love to minister to you. The work has been done. Christ has died for our sins. He is risen from the dead. That's the gospel. It's accomplished. It's done. And it's offered to you as a gift. But it's like any gift. It it only becomes ours when we receive it. Would you receive that free gift today? Would you, would you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith? Say, Lord, I give you my life. I trust in what you have accomplished on my behalf. Jesus tells us to, when we follow him, to go public with that. In a few moments, we're going to have a song of invitation. And if your desire is to follow Christ... We want to invite you to to slip out from where you are. As others stand, just slip out and come. We'll be here at the front to receive you and to pray with you. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of the family of God here at First Baptist, we would love to welcome you. If there's a need in your life, if you want to pray with someone or pray at the altar, it's open for you to do that. So, Father, we pray now that you would work in hearts and lives and have your way this time of decision. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. And you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.